0: You know by now that the dogs in my house wear Paco collars, and the newest addition is Stig's tan leather collar with brass fittings and turquoise stones. It seriously looks like the bay we bought our house on, and his smooth coat and long neck show it off perfectly. We picked it out in person at Paco's booth, and the staff helped us to be sure we got the exact fit and style that was right for him. I catch myself mesmerized by this collar when I walk him. How crazy is that? So get over to PacoCollars.com and grab a collar you'll be obsessed with. And don't forget to use the promo code COGDOG for free shipping. We've got a puppy. Puppy Elementary is my puppy training subscription service, and it's all about our new puppy, Watson. It's just $45 for six months of Watson's development and education, and you'll have indefinite access to the materials, so sign up anytime. Just go to www.thecognitivecanine.com and click the Puppy Elementary tab at the top of the page to register. Each week, you'll have access to multiple training videos and blogs, as well as constant access to the Puppy Elementary Facebook group, where you can talk about your progress with other students. Watson won't stay little for long, so join now. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is Cog Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it! Alrighty, it is page round two. If you missed page part one, which came out last week. You definitely wanna go back and listen to that first. This is a three-part case study, so they are best listened to in order, and this is part two. We're talking about Paige the Golden Retriever and her handler, Debra. Um, Paige and Deborah, I worked with online for about a year, um, and I outlined everything that we were kind of setting out to work on in last week's episode. So like I said, go listen to that one if you haven't. And let me just move the bone away from the wall that Iggy is grinding on. (laughs) Nothing like a slight interruption on a dog training podcast by a dog. Um, So this week, we are just going to cover the nitty-gritty the details what we did with Paige so let's start with her contacts um Paige's contact behaviors were all broken so she'd been competing in agility about seven years and the a-frame was kind of a leap and go the dog walk was a maybe slow down but then jump off and the teeter could be a fly off um, or could be qualifying kind of depending on the day and That's not what Deborah trained. She actually trained a two-on, two-off on all three pieces of equipment, but as they do, those behaviors broke down. And so we needed to decide, number one, what are the priorities here? And number two, what are we gonna do? Are we gonna try to repair the behaviors that are broken, or are we gonna teach brand new behaviors? And whenever I'm trying to make a decision like that, I go back to, all right, what's the reinforcement history that we're fighting? In this case, about a seven-year reinforcement history of the broken thing. Maybe a five-year reinforcement history because she did do stuff right early, early on. But we're looking at a very long reinforcement history. Even if it was just a year um, of reinforcement history, that's gonna be hard to undo. So we decided to go with some brand new behaviors. And in the case of the dog walk, um, Deborah really had no interest in training a running dog walk. I had no interest in trying to help her train a running dog walk. Um, What we decided to do was train Paige a brand new stop behavior for the dog walk. So we taught her to do um, a sphinx down in the yellow. And we started out by teaching her to do a down like that on a target pad that was roughly the size of the yellow on the board. So we taught her to do it down on that, regardless of Deborah's position. And we're gonna get a little bit into reinforcement strategies here. We needed her to drive ahead, so we were always reinforcing in position or ahead um, on that board, uh, or I'm sorry, on that target pad. When that behavior was looking nice, we put the target pad on a board. And why didn't we just do the board in the first place? Because I wanted to be able to transfer the target pad to the actual dog walk. And I wanted Paige to have a small enough target area that she needed to be all the way down at the end of the board, essentially, to be on the pad. And that way there wasn't as much um, room for error. The reason that a two on, two off remains so popular is, is because it's very easy to teach dogs to understand my two front feet are off the thing and my two back feet are on the thing and that's easier to teach them to understand than say running to a specific position on the board um, especially if that position is not going to be marked by something the dog can see which the yellow zones um, are too hard for them to see especially when they're going at speed. So we taught Paige to get into this really nice Sphinx down position on that dog walk and then we put the pad on the dog walk and then the real work began because she'd still sometimes throw out what her previous reinforcement history had taught her which could be jump off but it was often a two on two off and we had to make the decision are we going to reinforce that or are we going to stick to the behavior that we're trying to teach and the reason that we decided to only reinforce the new behavior was again, because the only reason she was offering us that two-on-two-off is because in training, it wasn't so broken. And it was easier to do than the new behavior. Arguably at that time also had a stronger reinforcement history than the new behavior. And we needed to continue to build that reinforcement history for that uh, down position on the target pad. So at first we had the target pad on there. Then we started to have Deborah run the dog walk both ways. So, in one direction, the target pad would, would be on the end for her, and then the other direction, it wouldn't be there. Um, and just asking her for that down behavior again, which we did put on um, a specific cue uh, before we put it on the board. And then we had to get the reinforcement ahead and away from the board. So This comes down to what I call sustainable reinforcement. So ring sustainable reinforcement is anything that can look as much like the reinforcers that you can use in the ring as possible. And you're going, what reinforcers that are in the ring? I don't have a toy. I don't have food. You don't, but you do have the ability to release to the next obstacle. And so that's effectively what's going to be reinforcing any stopped contacts for you. So we needed to move along to reinforcing her ahead out of the position as quickly as possible. And we did that. So we introduced Paige to a food robot or a manners minder. And in doing so, she had this kind of big, obvious, tangible thing out in front of her that she could see was next. So it's kind of like a gaping tunnel, um, right at the end of the dog walk board. I think we've all been there where our dog races straight into the tunnel instead of stopping in there two on two off. Or maybe that's just uh friends of mine and not me. Um <laughs> and so putting that food robot there is a nice split between um having an actual obstacle out there because if the dog releases themselves into a tunnel, the dog has effectively kind of self reinforced. So the tunnel we can assume has become a secondary reinforcer through our training. And so what we want to do is have a reinforcer out there that is actually controlled by us. And that's where the food robot is, is genius because then we can release her to the food robot and run. So we did some of that. We also did some reinforcement stashing. So just hiding food under the dog walk, hiding food behind the next jump wing and then releasing to the stash. So saying the stash cue, which basically is a cue that means come with me to reinforcement. So saying the stash cue, running to the reinforcement and giving to her. And what we really found out here, um, Deborah and I is how important just reinforcement mileage is we had to do so many dog walk repetitions and so many reinforcements of the correct behavior that we were looking for on the dog walk before we would start to see it reliably and before we stopped seeing that resurgence of the other behaviors that we didn't want um and before we ever put her in the ring we wanted it to look really reliable So just the long, hard hours, I think if we broke it down and really looked at the data, we'd all probably be astounded by the actual number of reps that we had to get in order to start to get this comparable um, to or I'm sorry to start to get this reliable. It's probably comparable to the number of reps on a dog walk period that Paige had had up until this point. So this is a lot of repetition. And I'm gonna say it again and again, that's why we don't want things to break in the first place, right? Because once things are broken, now we're in a much bigger hole. We need to do more repetitions than we ever would have needed to do in the first place if we had kind of just done them right. Dabber's the first person to know this, and when we talk to her in the interview portion, you guys will see that she very much knew the hole that she was getting into. That doesn't necessarily mean that you know what to do about it, and that doesn't necessarily mean that conventional wisdom will help you get out. You know, she had already tried all, all sorts of stuff. People do not land with me doing private coaching usually before stuff goes hideously wrong. (laughs) You know, usually people have exhausted a lot of their options at that point. So that's kind of a brief overview of what we did with the dog walk. We did also start to introduce Paige to a, um, what I would call punishment consequence so in training we also did give her a brief break from training very brief go put her in an pen for a second she always had a bone or a snuffle mat or whatever in there it was never a you know go lock her in the dungeon situation but we would halt training if she blew the dog walk at a certain point so once her percentages were such that she was getting like a 70 percent success rate, but still maybe that 30% fail rate, we started to actually punish those fails. So rather than just withholding reinforcement and trying again, we started to put in a response cost. So we started to actually remove her from the course and give her a break, uh, before trying again. That's something that I wouldn't do right out the gate. That's something that we did again after we were seeing that pretty high success rate with her. But I did want that introduced in training because that is what I ultimately wanted Deborah to do when she did bring Paige back out to trials. Um and I should mention that Deborah was very good and pulled Paige from all standard runs until we decided together that she was ready to try again. In the end, Paige's dog walk behavior was one of the most successful things that we repaired together, Deborah and I. Um, I think we're both really proud of it. And we'll hear more from Deborah about that next week. So the other two contacts, the teeter was a really fun one I think for us to fix because we decided to just change the reinforcement strategy um, and just teach Paige to focus forward and hit that board to the ground and that there would be a reinforcer waiting for her. So we trained her what I call a dish cue, which is basically a marker cue that means go eat food out of a bowl that's on the ground. So we trained her that when the handler says dish, you should locate the bowl, run for the bowl and eat food out of it. Then we started to put the dish after the teeter and we put it so close to the teeter that. It would behoove Paige to stay on the teeter so that she could see where the bowl was. So she had to ride the teeter all the way down, hit it to the ground, and then go to the dish. And then we moved the dish gradually further and further out. And Deborah's timing was really important here. She had to mark dish when the board hit the ground. She got really good at it. We didn't have to do too terribly many reps. I would say the teeter overall was less successful than the dog walk, but we didn't work as hard on it. When they did get back out and do some standard runs, the teeter would fail on occasion, but it did not fail often. And we both decided not to pull Paige from the course for a failure on the teeter either. We were essentially trying to change her behavior based on the reinforcement placement, rather than trying to train her a brand new behavior. And then with the A-frame, we embarked on training Page to hit um, a target mat on the A-frame, and we had kind of a t- three steps forward, two steps back process with this. It was not easy for Page um, to change her A-frame behavior for a couple of reasons. Um, and the reason we decided to go with the hit it with the mat is because this, you know bigger bodied dog she's not a huge golden retriever but she's certainly you know bigger than a border collie that would run in her same height class it's going to be hard on them to stop in a two on two off position so we embarked on that i think that deborah and i both learned um, and Paige learned and deborah has successfully used the same method to train her young dog parks to run her a-frame ultimately we were not comfortable doing the repetitions required on the A-frame to get Paige, to get Paige's A-frame to a full run at her age. So we'll talk a little bit more about that with Deborah. but essentially again, we really, we fixed the dog walk. We did a lot of repair work on the teeter and we certainly did increase Paige's rate of hitting the yellow on the A-frame in competitions. we were not 100% successful in our efforts there. And a lot of that had to do with um, Paige's body simply being an aging body and unable to do what we were continuing to do. So we actually ultimately decided to just scrap that plan. Which I think it's important to understand is not a failure. Um, I think it's important to understand that making the conscious decision to scrap a training plan because it is no longer in your dog's best interest is the opposite of a failure. That, to me, is a huge, huge success point and a really important thing um, for Deborah. I think, going forward after this process. So we also did quite a bit with what a lot of people would refer to as just Paige's general kind of arousal behaviors. She was that kind of... um, barky, bouncy, you know, her eyes would glaze over type of dog whenever anything went wrong on course um, and certainly on the start line and maybe outside of the ring. So we did attempt to kind of train Paige a lineup outside start button behavior um, and and an eye contact start button behavior. What wound up working best for Paige actually was just to ask her if she was mentally capable of working through cue testing, rather than um, asking her for a true consent signal. So what I would have Deborah do is just ask Paige for behaviors that she knows how to do on a one-to-one reinforcement ratio. So she'd ask her for a sit, she'd pay her, ask her for a down. Pay her ask her for a spin pay her and that kind of thing and so she would just test her cues outside of the ring and when paige was unable to give her those cues she would soothe she would soothe with a pattern or a scatter that wound up to be their golden ticket she really wound up learning how to tell if paige was ready or not which is so much more valuable i think than an actual train start button is just being able to tell if your dog is ready or not Not everybody can. The start button um, has so much value for so many other reasons that I still really recommend it most of the time. For Paige and Deborah, the cue testing system was the best system. So she would test her mouth and then she would test her cues. And if her responses were good, she was able to take her in the ring and generally do pretty well. She also made some changes to her just downtime at trials, making sure that she was actually resting or relaxing in the crate, utilizing a snuffle mat um, and things like that to be certain that there was relaxation during the downtimes was really, really important for Paige. And a few of those kind of micro skills that I mentioned were really important. So we taught Paige all kinds of targeting behaviors. The dog walk behavior was a targeting behavior. The uh, A-free behavior, which Deborah worked the snot out of just in her living room, as well as the um, dog walk contact behavior. Those were all targeting behaviors that have ultimately led to Paige and Deborah having a better working relationship and just better skills that they can use together um, out in the world. Like I said, they do some competitive obedience, and it certainly improved a lot of their competitive obedience communication as well. Cue discrimination was another one. So teaching Paige how to do a sit down, stand, spin, etc., on cue without throwing a bunch of behaviors out instead wound up being super important. And what's really vital here is that when you're teaching a client or when you're teaching yourself to improve that skill, because I think you'd be amazed how many dogs do not actually understand the difference between all those words. They're watching other. They're watching your subtle body language cues. um, They're picking up on contextual cues. We want them to truly be able to listen and respond. If they're not, they're just watching you for those subtle kind of predictive things that you do. And you're just teaching them that that's their best bet rather than listen. Yeah, and that kind of bites you when it comes to dog sports. It might not be a big problem uh, with your pet dog training, but it is a problem when it comes to dog sports. So it's important to empower the handler of what to do when something goes wrong there. So if you say sit and the dog lies down, what the heck are you actually supposed to do? I think that um, that's a tough one because people don't talk about it. <laughs> they say, well, that shouldn't happen because you should have trained sit better than that. Or, you know, whatever. The answer, the fact of the matter is it may happen. what's really important is that you just pause and then give another cue. So rather than saying sit three more times and then finally reinforcing, which is going to potentially build frustration, potentially damage your cue because the dog's now heard it three times, you just pause. So that tiny, tiny lapse in reinforcement does matter to the learner. So just pause and then ask for another behavior. And I actually prefer for it to not be the behavior the dog just failed. I prefer for it to be something else that I am pretty sure the dog is going to get right, which is, you know, that's really important. I think instead we just wanna see them get right, the one that they just got wrong, when really our job is to get them to reinforcement. And we're not gonna get them to reinforcement by asking them for that thing, they just failed all over again. So let's say I say sit and the dog lies down. I'm just gonna pause, and then I'm gonna ask the dog for a nose target. Dog does the nose target, I mark and reinforce. Then I might ask for that sit again, and if the dog fails it twice in a row, then I know I need to break that skill out and work on that in and of itself in a separate session. And I think that part is one of those more important parts that people tend to forget which is if an error is occurring on a semi-regular basis, it's time to break that error out of the training and really really fix it, say, what's actually going on with this? and how can I how can I boost that reinforcement history for that behavior so that it's a more usable workable behavior for me? And so empowering Deb to be able to understand what to do when Paige, was not responding correctly, to understand what to do when she was responding correctly, all of those things were so, so vital for um, this very seasoned dog trainer to be able to communicate just that much better with her dog, with her students' dogs, um, and with her new puppy that was coming along. So I did mention that we retrained the table behavior for Paige as well. And the first thing we did was we just made the table the hot zone. So we just taught her that anytime you do something right, I'm gonna cue you to go to the table and then you're gonna get a jackpot on the table. So the the cue for go to the table essentially started to act as a marker signal for the correct behaviors, which completely changed the dog's worldview surrounding the table. Rather than it being this stupid timeout point on course, it became the party point on course. So the dog would do her correct dog walk contact, we'd cue table, run to the table, feed her there. Then we started to add the down, ask for the down after the dog is on the table, feed. Um, And really, again, just boosting up that reinforcement history for doing the table correctly. The table is one of those things that people don't train a whole lot. They probably train it up front and then they don't work on it, kind of like start lines. You should actually be working on things like the table and your start line stay as much as you're working on things like weave poles and threadles. These are really important things to work on, especially for your average weekend competitor. You probably need the dog to stay on the table so that you can actually lead out. You probably need the dog to stay on the start line. This would make your life easier. Be protective of those skills that matter. And perhaps more importantly with the table is that it's not so much that she would end cue on it a lot, but that she would really bark at Deborah, and she would see it as such a source of frustration. And so maybe she would avoid it, um, be really barky on it. It was just a bad point on course, so we needed to fix it. And I am happy to say we were pretty successful with this. Her table behavior changed really hugely once we just made it a no conflict zone. We taught her to offer the table behavior for reinforcement. And Deborah just put some of those really good training hours into it. So ultimately, um, most of our goals were met. Deborah's is one of these really great clients who just did the work, worked hard, understood that her dog was, you know, seven, eight years old and unable necessarily to, you know, maybe repair this career's worth of stuff and go on to compete at the national or whatever. That's not what Deborah was after. She was after figuring out what went wrong here, learning, repairing, and just truly embracing anything that this process was going to bring to her. Um, which is why we worked really well together. And I think we had a lot of success. So I'm looking forward to my interview with Deborah, and I hope you guys are too. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to CogDog Radio. If you have questions or suggestions, shoot them over to CogDogRadio at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like the CogDog Radio Facebook page. And until next time, happy training.